Hey everyone, um, again, sorry about late episode recording, this was recorded a weekend after Oppenheimer was released, and, uh, obviously months before the Oscar nominations came out, so sorry about the time and inconvenience, but other than that, um, enjoy the rest of the episode. This is uh, Gilbert's It's All About the Media podcast. Uh, Jesus and I are back together with another good uh, episode. As I mentioned before, also, first off, earlier this summer, we meant to do an Indiana Jones episode, but due to, like, unfortunate uh, scheduling for me, I I haven't been able to actually see the movie, so I'm going to have to be one of those, uh, I wouldn't say poor saps, but at least one of those people who have to wait till it's released on Disney+. Plus. So, unfortunately, we won't be getting an Indiana Jones episode sooner, but... I was going to say, I'll probably get a chance to watch it when it's like on Disney+. Plus. I was going to say, add to that and say, uh, yeah, that's probably a safe bet based, yeah. on, based on what I watched when I went to the theater. Yeah, but we did promise an Oppenheimer episode or we said a Christopher Nolan episode, but I think we both agreed. Let's just do an entire Oppenheimer episode because I, I have a lot to say about that film, especially because like, if y'all don't know, I'm a huge Christopher Nolan fan. Always have been since I saw... The Dark Knight, even before I knew like who Christopher Nolan was. Yeah, it's um I would say what you would think this is like his longest film ever, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's close to about three hours. Three hours? Yeah. Before that, I would I thought probably Interstellar was, but then Oppenheimer beats the cake. And I did the whole Barbenheimer thing. I got held against my will to watch the first film, but I'll give you my two cents on Barbie in another time. But this is just like I want to avoid the whole Barbie thing right now. But I will say, like, I didn't hate the film. But again, when the time comes when I want to talk about the film, I'll talk about it. But yeah, I did the Barbenheimer thing as most Americans did. Yeah, Oppenheimer, I loved it. I, I will say I loved it more than Barbie. But maybe that's just me being biased because I love any Christopher Nolan flick. But it's an interesting film because you don't just dive deep into... So just in context, it's about J. Robert Oppenheimer, who created the atomic bomb that was dropped Nagasaki in Hiroshima during the Second World War. And it doesn't just talk about like the making of the bomb. I'll say the making of the bomb is like 40 percent of the film because 60 percent of it, it's about events that happen after the bombing of Japan. If I can remember context wise, it's basically like. Oppenheimer in the 50s, I believe, is accused of being a communist. So like Strauss, it's been a while since I see the film. I, I tried to watch it again before this podcast, but I just didn't get a chance to. But Strauss played by, wonderfully played by Robert Downey Jr., if you can agree to that. Yeah, Strauss is like trying it's, to revoke his membership. I was going to say, it's, I, I get it. There's going to be a lot of Marvel fans who are going to be upset by what I say this. But I mean, this is probably RDJ's uh, best performance like ever. Like yeah. if, if he doesn't win an Oscar for this, I'm like, what, what's the point? Yeah, we will talk about like Oscar potential for this film, but Strauss is just trying to revoke like his memberships and all that because like he thinks like Oppenheimer like made all the scientists turn against him, starting with Einstein. And then we'll talk about like what really supposedly what really happened. I don't think that's what it happened in real life, but I like to think maybe that's what it happened because like the conversation between Einstein and Oppenheimer is like 
I think it's a good way to, to end the film. You know, this film kind of went to a full 360 almost. Yeah. If I could tell you my reactions coming out, again, no no offense to anybody who went to go view the film. Everyone has opinions and stuff, but since uh, being in depth with the sciences and like in, like always seeing the news every day about what's happening in the world and the natural world, this uh, the ending couldn't have been any, like you said, it could not have been any other better ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, I walked out of this movie feeling re- like really reflective over life oh. over what we're we as a society are doing it's like almost like to put it lightly it's like we need to stay the way we are like with all this stuff going on we need to be supportive of countries that are at war with each other we need to be this and that we need to understand where we're, what angle do we support where angle we're coming from because all in all it doesn't matter if you're oh it doesn't matter what kind of party or political uh, agenda you follow we as as a species, we're going to die if we don't come together. That exactly. ending really like opened, like it, it, it didn't open my eyes. It just reaffirmed my belief that we're screwed if we don't actually like come together and not kill each other over missiles and all this nuclear uh, warfare. Yeah. And like given where we are right now in this day and age, especially here in the U.S. where we have our own like political battles, it goes to the affirmation that we're all human. We're not born perfect. Nobody is. In case y'all don't know, like, Assist and I are firm believers in Jesus Christ. And we've always known that, like, we're not born perfect. It's not the intention for us. It's just more like we just have to live. We're going to struggle. That's the purpose of being a human. And, yeah, it just really opened my eyes. And aside from Robert Downey Jr.'s great performance, I'll at least I'll accept if he gets nominated. But, again, I'll, we'll talk about the Oscar thing in a bit, like, towards the end. But Cillian Mur- or Killian Murphy... Cillian so, Murphy, huh? Yeah. His performance as Oppenheimer was astounding. And it's interesting because if you've seen, like, his performance-wise in Nolan mm-hmm. films, he's usually in the sidelines. So, like, in case y'all don't, y'all don't know or don't remember, Cillian Murphy played the Scarecrow in the Dark Knight trilogy. At least in Batman Begins, it was a little bit of a bigger role, as was the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises, where it was, like, a cameo or two. Yeah, just to see him just step up. He was also in Inception and Dunkirk. And yeah, those were very small roles for him. So just seeing him like now taking a lead performance. And this is obviously not his first lead performance. He's done. I don't know if, if anyone out there is familiar with the first with the film uh, 28 Days Later. Yes. Uh, yeah. Excellent zombie film, by the way. And then also fans like me, we're, I'm a huge fan of a show on Netflix called Peaky Blinders, where he played like the head of a British gang in the 19. 19- 20s to 30s and 40s. It's an amazing show. He makes a great performance in that show. Need to catch up on that. It's a good show, man. It's not as risque as like a certain scene in this film that we will eventually talk about. Pretty much it starts off like with sound. The thing about Nolan films, and this has always been a critique on Nolan films, not by me, but to a lot of fans or to a lot of movie viewers. He likes to play with sound so many times, you know, Mm -hmm. like he plays with sound towards like, a character is talking, but you don't know what they're saying. I get the whole realism of like, well, how, that's how sound works. So going, I even asked you this a while back. It's like going into this on a scale of one to death, how much sound are we going to get out of this? And yeah, we went to full on death on in an hour into that film. It, it was is, crazy. Like yeah. not even 10 minutes into the, not even 10 minutes or five minutes into the film. And you're already like on your, on this edge of your seat. Cause, or back towards your seat actually because of how you know how loud this whole screen was i mean it depends on what theater you're at i went to regal 
cinemas just for like just to see it with with my brother in digital and then afterwards i went by myself to see imax and 70 millimeter both theaters regardless they shook up the whole room it was just crazy like yeah. uh, there were times where i had to cover my ears because i i knew coming in like okay something's gonna go down and it's gonna be loud enough so i'm gonna get tendinitis <laughs> yeah speaking of 70 millimeter this one of the reasons i love nolan is because he sticks with traditional film versus what a lot of modern filmmakers do but also like film is rare now actual film guys i'm talking about like the camera actually rolling film it's rare nowadays and i think mm -hmm. it even costs a lot more than using a digital camera because of how old and antique it becomes but that's why i like it yeah but like it starts off with a few sounds and I love that he starts off with talking about, because the quote from, I don't even know what book it is. We just know it's from the story of Prometheus. And if y'all don't know the story of Prometheus, it's about an alien ship. I'm just kidding. No, that's not where I'm going with. No, if y'all don't know the story. So basically, Prometheus was a titan. I know, not on Attack on Titan. I know a lot yeah. of people would have probably confused <laughs> that even more. Or a teen titan, but he was a titan. Like the, it would say more, what is it? Like the gods before the gods or something like that. Yeah, like uh, kind of if you, uh, not a demigod, but more like just related back to the old ancient Greece and like the yeah. whole myths about uh, Athena, Zeus, Poseidon. Yeah. I mean, Prometheus was just around there. Like he wasn't top, uh, he wasn't at the top, but he was like just around there. Yeah. And like supposedly Prometheus had created man from himself out of clay and Zeus had to fire from Olympus that had like knowledge and like stuff, how to live life. So seeing his creation not know how to understand anything, Prometheus took fire from Olympus and gave it to humanity. And out of punishment, Zeus had him tied to a rock. And a seagull would come every day to eat out his liver and to kill him. And then he would wake up the next day, his liver would be back. And then the seagull would come and do it all over again. So I actually make sense because like when man was given fire a whole mess of pardon my french but a whole mess of shit just happened out of that that's pretty much where like it went with oppenheimer you know as soon as you introduce a weapon such as big as a bomb like that everyone's gonna want to get their hands on it and it's gonna even mm -hmm. get even worse and worse so yeah again keep in mind on what we're gonna be on the ending as well but it starts off with that quote and then you just see, like, oftentimes he's already, like, on trial for, again, supposedly being a communist. And then it goes back and forth. When he was in university, he's studying physics because that's his profession. And then you get into, like, the political side. So back then, you know, if you were considered a communist, like, you were considered not a good person because this was the time of the Red Scare, which was, like, after the Second World War, the Russia has been taking over most of that side of the hemisphere because now Germany's backed off and America is not now afraid of the communism that's rising from Russia and it's made its way to the U.S. So he's being accused of being a communist, which supposedly his brother was a communist or not an official. Like he said he was an official member, but his sister-in-law was. Sorry. I don't even know what the actor's name is, but when you saw the brother, what was your reaction? Oppenheimer's brother. You mean like as in the actor or you just yeah, mean the, just a the character? The, the actor. I'll be honest. I didn't recall who the actor playing his brother was. Oh, so it was, uh, I forgot what his name was. It was Allison's boyfriend in the first two Halloween films or in David Gordon Green. Trilogy. Really? Yeah. I just remembered it instantly. Wow. Yeah. And that's another good thing about this film is that you're going to see a whole bunch of actors that you're like, wow, you have not seen them in a while. I didn't recognize him, but I recognized every other actor that I saw on screen. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, they, so as I mentioned, like Oppenheimer was introduced to the Communist Party. He fell in love with a girl. Hold on. We got to get the names here because the girls played by Florence Pugh. We all know as in like the new Black Widow. Midsummer. Midsummer. That's a freaky movie, by the way. Dude, you, if you have not seen the director's cut, man, that's even freakier. Oh, yeah. So Gene Tedlock, that's like an actual person. Because normally, like most biographical films, they'll like make up someone or something just to keep the story interesting. So I actually had to look up, was this an actual love affair? It was like Oppenheimer was in love with this woman and she was like 20 years younger than him at the time. But yeah, it's interesting. So, and like she supposedly was a communist or she was a member of the communist party, but also through the communist party, Oppenheimer would eventually meet his future, actual future wife, uh, Kitty Oppenheimer. Kitty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, uh, so you know, we'll say because I was going to talk about Emily Blunt's performance. It's good. It's just that we don't get too much of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because yeah. remember, I mean, as far as I can tell, this whole film acts as a biopic. It's like everyone thinks, okay, we're going to see how the bomb is made. And then afterwards, a lot of people coming in, like before coming into this film, they were suggesting, okay, we're going to actually see it drop on both Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And I was like, no, you're not. This is only about how they made the the bomb yeah and then whatever happens to Oppenheimer afterwards like yeah. it's it was never about oh we're gonna see World War II end yeah it's interesting and like the sex scene the first one shook everyone off guard because this was Christopher Nolan's like first sex scene in his in any of his films yes it's the first time where he show he visually shows it like shows nudity yeah at least but like I mean if, if you count the Dark Knight Rises where oh, yeah. Bruce and uh Talia they had their moment, but of course, PG-13, they don't show any major... The anatomy wasn't there, y'all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was also Florence Pugh's, like, first undressing scene ever. Yeah, it just caught everyone off guard, but yeah, it was an actual, like, love, because I think she was also involved with somebody else. He had to, like, marry Kitty because he got her pregnant, so eventually, like, him and Kitty get married, and then they move into, where is it, Berkeley? or I forgot where they moved. It was really because like Oppenheimer got a new job at a university. Oh yeah, just, you're right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. It was Princeton University. So that was that was probably in uh, like you said, Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously he started off with just one student, which led to a whole bunch of more students. And all these students as well are commies because they support the Communist Party. Because this was during the time of the fascist Germany rising, and Oppenheimer himself was Jewish. And to them, like the Communist Party, it speaks to more of like, you know, they wanted something that was anti-fascist, mm-hmm. but People from both ends realize that, like, communism, and if you want to know my opinion, I am anti-communist, I'm also anti-fascist, but I don't know why people are trying to, like, bring both groups modernly, but it's just me. But it's like, you know, the government is afraid of, like, all these young Tommy kids, especially taking over the, the university, especially Josh Hartnett's character, who's also, like, mm. a little bit scared. And around the same now, we actually get forward to the Manhattan Project, which was starting of figuring out how to make a bomb and one character he's russian or i I forgot what his name was you mean telling telling before they even begin he had to go over a few numbers but before we even try you need to look over because i did the the math and they're all doubting it like no this can't be possible so oppenheimer had to go to the number one genius at the time mr albert einstein yeah and they Let me tell like, you, when that happened, yeah. when, when he showed up on screen, I was like, let's go, baby. Like, this felt, to me, this felt like the Avengers level threat. Yeah. Right there. It's amazing. So now they have to figure out how are we going to, like, make this, like, 
Because I guess he over to, to Tesla because if he had not run the numbers, who knows what, like Japan probably would never exist anymore or they probably would have died trying to make a bomb. See, here's the thing, though. A little known fact for those who just watched the film and who realized, like you said, a lot of these characters are real world people. Teller was very influential later on after the Los Alamos project. He was very influential in the continuation of like the atomic race with the U.S. and the, uh, the whole starting to make a lot of ICBM missiles. Specifically, he was really infatuated with the hydrogen bomb. Now, the hydrogen bomb later on would discover in real life that it is way worse than what they made at Trinity. Oh, yeah. sorry, the Trinity test. Again, I, I don't mean to cut off uh, on, on what you're saying, but if I could add another thing to this. Yeah, go ahead. Again, with being the science guy and all, if you notice every little bit, besides science being a, a major aspect of the film, it was embedded in every small detail that we take for granted we don't even see. So like, just like if I can go back to the beginning, you know how when Oppenheimer is just staring at the water and seeing puddles, yeah. seeing little droplets, and then notice how as uh, you, ha- you see the montage as he's, uh, you know, as he's understanding physics and how theoretic theory of all this stuff works. Yeah. You see that montage. You notice how sometimes he was in bed and he would see things like little white lines. Mm-hmm. They look like static in the air. Yeah. That, just so you know, is him visually seeing how the atom looks. Those white lines were there for a reason because knowing Nolan tried to be as scientifically accurate as possible. The puddles were initially, like, when you see the little droplets and you see how, like, it makes a vibration sometimes. Like, uh, if it makes any sense, try to go back to Jurassic Park. You know how when uh, Tim, when he's in the car on the yeah. Jeep and he sees the water and it starts to make those little, like, rings, like if it was vibrating? Mm-hmm. That's similar to what we saw in the film. Every time there was a droplet of water on the ground, those little, every time you saw the rings or the vibrations, that was Oppenheimer's visual cue of what the atom looks like or why he was so influenced by the science, the scientists before him, like Einstein and Niels Bohr, yeah. which I know we didn't talk about Niels Bohr, but Niels Bohr is responsible for helping the modern world discover or understand what the atom looks like. And if, yeah. if uh, you notice the rings on Adam, if you go online and look up what an atom looks like now, his original design had rings, like a big ring on the outside and then a ring a smaller ring, a smaller ring, all the way to the center. Those droplets at the beginning of the film is Oppenheimer visually seeing the atom. And then when you notice the explosion the first mm-hmm. time, yeah, that's him visualizing what happens when you split the atom. Yeah. So just me, just like I said, this movie really like I, I felt so in love with this movie because of how much science was just put into this film. Like to the point yeah. where I'm sitting here, like I get a lot of people, maybe yourself, are probably confused at this point of what I'm saying. <laughs> but just me seeing that on screen, I was like, I desperately want to show this to my kids, yeah. even though it's rated R. Yeah, I forgot it was rated R. It's, apparently, this was his first rated R film since Insomnia, which I believe is the only Nolan film I have yet to see. So, and it's also the only Nolan film that had R.I.P. Robin Williams in it. Yes. Yes, but yeah, so he's recruited to the Manhattan Project by everyone. The one who leads it, I'm looking up his name right now. Leslie Gross, the the guy who's in charge of it all. Matt and Damon, right? Matt Damon, dude. I would say this was his second role in a Nolan film since Interstellar. Interstellar. Which, uh, one of my favorites. But yo, that's 
the cast is just amazing in this film. And then we get like a whole set of cast. Like we get uh, Randy Quaid, who's famous for The Boys. He also came out in Scream 5 last year. Yeah, he is, in fact, the son of Dennis Quaid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing actor. Josh Peck was the big kicker on that one. <laughs> I mean, if you've seen Drake and Josh, if you grew up with Drake and Josh, you're like, okay, this is like quite a shift in his career. And imagine if he was saying, like, it's spherical. It's spherical. <laughs> yeah. Josh Hartnett, as I met, as I say, you don't see a lot from Josh Hartnett. That's another thing is that all these actors you have not seen in a while, like, who else, who else is in? I forget I'm, the name who plays him, but he's well known for Roderick in yeah, Diary of a that's who I'm look. That's who I'm actually looking for right now. I think it's like Devon something. Devon Boswick, here you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so the reason why, it, there was even an interview where, like, people were talking about, you know, that's the guy from Diver Wimpy Kid. And I think the majority of this casting was has to do with also Nolan's kids. Mm-hmm. Because Nolan's kids are, I think, in their teens right now. When he casted uh, Harry Styles for Dunkirk, he did not know who Harry Styles was. But it's because of his daughter would obviously listen to One Direction, so that's how he heard about Harry Styles. But yeah, it's it's such an amazing, amazing cast. But yeah, and David Crumholtz, who played Bernard in the Santa Claus films. Mm-hmm. That yeah. dude, that I didn't know. Like, I watched the whole film. I went back home and I was reading reviews and people's reactions. And yeah. all I remember is somebody's like, it's Bernard, Bernard. I'm like, what? Yeah. And then we'll talk about it now. But you didn't even know that Gary Oldman played Truman because of all that makeup that was on to him. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that too. I had no clue. Dude, I saw right through the makeup, but it's also because like when you see Darkest Hour, which was a film Gary Oldman won the Oscar for, at this point, you already you can already see who Gary Oldman is. But yeah, such an amazing cast. So really, you just get this whole montage of like how they're like trying to create with the physics, the science behind trying to think all of the how they're, you know, how they're creating the bomb. What how are they going to do it? You also get like, you know, more students trying to figure out how to how to create this bomb. And then you're also going back and forth to, because this film shifts back and forth. It goes from to the creating of the bomb, then back to the trial, which by the way, the trial gets like even more and more intense. And then also you get the subplot, like him and his wife are like having like doubts, which is why eventually he goes back to Tedlock and has another affair with her. That scene, yeah, there's nudity in that scene, but in the Middle East, it's covered in a black dress. That's funny. Yeah. But yeah, dude, it's like you, it gets so like deep into Oppenheimer. Like I didn't know too much about him, but yeah, by the way, y'all, I just came back from working at a summer camp. I'm tired as heck, but hey, it was worth it. We all, in fact, everyone at my camp went to go see the film. That's why I said I got dragged into seeing Barbie. Somebody that I went with, he was wearing a Barbenheimer shirt, which I didn't even know existed at the time. But, oh, by the way, if anybody's still doing that um, and they haven't, like, if they're planning on watching the films, do yourself a favor and watch Oppenheimer first because uh, you don't want to get off of a film that's it's not made for kids. I, neither film is made for kids. I know neither. they've advertised so much that Barbie is basically for everybody, but it really isn't. But Barbie leaves you on a high note. Yeah. Oppenheimer doesn't. So no. watch Oppenheimer first. Yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of glad we're uh... But I mean, I watched Oppenheimer from eight to twelve, yo. That, like I said, it's a long film. That's the thing I want to mention. It's not really about the movie. It's like I, re- you were telling me, and you, you were actually warning me the chances of seeing the Exorcist Believer trailer. I had to warn the people who I was seeing the movie with to be like, "Hey, my friend just told me there's a chance that the Exorcist trailer is going to be released." 
but I wasn't sitting in the same row with them. So I just wondered how their reaction was because that was my first time actually watching the trailer. So I like didn't even go on YouTube because I actually wanted to be like surprised. I wish I watched the trailer first before I saw the film. Here's the thing, though. The trailer wasn't even out on YouTube. Uh, It was doing like for opening weekend. It was making its rounds privately just through mm. the screenings online so like to force people to go and watch a movie yeah. in theaters and then after about a week or so they they went ahead and put it yeah well that was smart and now traumatizing and then you watch oppenheimer and it just leaves on a down note but i mean it's still a great film yeah much of the plot it is just going back and forth but it's also like like even like, as i said even in the courtroom thing uh jason isaac's character trying to bring down oppenheimer making all these like questions and then eventually, as we can skip forward and say, like, eventually, like, we go to the part where Germany has now, like, surrendered, but we're still dealing with Japan. So they said, you know what, we're just going to start doing the, then we're going to have to test it on Japan, or we're going to have to drop it on Japan. And then the Trinity test, man, it gets you on the edge of your seat. Mm. Yeah. And then what was the secret code he said to his wife? Like, take down the sheets. Take down the sheets. Meaning, like, if it's successful, which mm. it was. And then... Man. And then the whole Los Alamos, like the fact that they created a fake town for testing. Believe like, it or not, it's still a town. It's, uh, I mean, it's it's obviously more populated and it's it's been bigger over the years. But now it's like, I think uh, as far as I can tell, Los Alamos itself, the original town, it's uh, kind of like, I think, left behind is... As a, as a historical, you know, property and people yeah. can go visit it as a museum, et cetera. But yeah, yeah, it's just crazy. Like you said, like how it all been made into a whole city just to, or a town just to uh, make this thing happen. Yeah. And the other thing that's uh, crazy is that like that, you know, this was it was a Native American reserve. Mm-hmm. And after the whole thing, he was like, we just we're going to tear down the town, give the natives back their land. And then the government's like, no, nah, you know, what? we're just going to keep it open. So. It's kind of messed up on their end, but that's the thing, though. It's like yeah. I was hoping. I mean, again, Native Americans always get the butt end of, I guess, the joke uh, of the sadly, and they were only mentioned twice in this film. If anything, they could have at least had some sort that could probably be a movie. And no, I'm not counting. I mean, I'm not saying Killers of the Flower Moon is not going to be like the representation. I mean, like, could there have been a movie to come out soon? that would show the reaction of this like at that time they were they were taking their land and now they were further taking their land and making them go to other places just to make this fake town yeah yeah it's just unfortunate but you know he wanted to give the natives back their land he know he was just only he wanted to just borrow it just so that they can test it out and like i said that the trinity scene where they're just testing out the bomb again gets you on the edge of your seats especially when it rains because the slightest touch can set it off, you know, and this is a bomb that has like, what, like a 30, 40 mile radius explosion. Like you don't want to get caught in that crossfire. And then like, as soon as the bomb explodes, it's like two minutes of silence. Mm-hmm. And then it just gets loud because you hear the after wave, like the aftershock wave. That's just gosh. Yeah. When they were testing out like how the bomb is going to be, there was a bit of a delay like a one second delay and then you hear it later on when they're like hiding behind like pieces of wood. But then, dude, that scene, I mean, like I remember you showing me, I don't know if it was you show. we just saw a video of like Willem Dafoe from Here to Return It or not from Here to Return It. I forgot what the movie's called, but he was playing Vincent Van Gogh and like there's a scene where like he's just looking up into the heavens 
And that's the thing called like, you know, when you're in the front row of the IMAX theater and you're looking up and then <laughs> that sound, you know, like that's the part where we're saying like, it's going to make you deaf. And then eventually the bombs were dropped and he thinks like, this is a good win for America. But now in his mind, he's thinking, crap, now I also just killed millions, millions of, of people. It, yeah, like innocent people who weren't even involved. And then, you know, Harry S. Truman's not very... He's saying, like, you know, no one's going to care about, like, those who suffered during the atomic bombing. You Actually, know? here's the yeah. thing. I think you're the way you mentioned that, I think the interpretation was incorrect. If I remember correctly, he was only like the way this movie expressed him in a different way, like like a negative mm. way. And oh, that's really? what it felt like. But really, he was te- letting Oppenheimer know that the, those innocent people aren't going to give crap yeah. about who made the bomb. All they care about was who launched it. Mm. So... For a reason for him to say to get to in real life, he did do this. He did tell Oppenheimer, get out of my sight. Don't let him ever come back to my office again. Because, I mean, if you look at it in his perspective, the real life Harry S. Truman must have lived with some severe regret until his death. Yeah. For having to kill millions of people. Yeah. And little to anyone's knowledge, except yours, obviously. The actual bombing is actually the actual inspiration for the birth of Godzilla. Because the creator of the first Godzilla film wanted to show, like, this is how, like, this is the horror we suffered when the bombs were dropped. And, like, shameless plug. I was just letting you know, it's a shameless plug right now. But speaking up to that, in this December, uh, believe it or not, we're getting another Godzilla film from Japan. Oh, really? And it will be, it's uh, basically the prequel to every film. As in, it's the prequel to the original film. Not sure how they're going to do this, but apparently. It's basically Godzilla in uh, post-war 1945. So right when the bomb hit Japan, he's going to show up and uh, think about this. They're already dealing with having mm-hmm. to clean up and, you know, look for all their loved ones and all of this mess. And now they still have to go and hide themselves or protect themselves against a big kaiju. Yeah. So th- I actually can't wait to see what they do with this. Yeah. Dude, I'm just, like, imagining, like, how Japan must have felt through all of this. Because it's like, yeah. I don't know, you think, like, it's supposed to end the war, but also, I guess in their term, lives must be lost for order for one side to win. One side has to suffer the consequences. There's got to be, like, some kind of theology there or something there. I was going to say universalism, where it's like certain one life can be lost to save millions of others. That's, like, what their theology life is. Mm-hmm. But we now we're going back to Oppenheimer's like trial because supposedly like plans and all that were in their cases leaked or given out on like the Soviets learning how also how to make a bomb. You know, you deal mm-hmm. with the aftermath of everyone else who was involved, like Teller and of course Leslie. They're like being they have to testify against Oppenheimer. You know, they have to say like one of them answered, "Would you hire Oppenheimer today?" Now knowing like what the consequences were. There's this, like, it's interesting how, like, people are trying to turn against him, even though, like, deep down, they know, like, if it wasn't for him, like, the war would, would not have been won. Yeah, this is where, like, you just see, you get Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> even, you get his bigger performance in this film. You know, like, he's getting, every scene that he was in, it's like, he surprises me more and more. Yeah, and then now there's this one scene where now, like, they're asking his wife questions. This is the only scene where Emily Blunt 
actually shines through because like in the past, like her character, Kitty Oppenheimer has just been in the back seat the entire time. This is where her character shines or like she's turned every time uh, Jason Isaac's character asks her a question, she turns the tables back on them, you know, asking about like, didn't you used to join the communist party? Why did you, you know what I mean? Like she's trying to like make her turn against Oppenheimer, even though at that time, like she's kind of like, you know, she kind of scolds at him because of the whole, you know, a fair thing that happened. But, but yeah, also that, not that, but also, yeah. I mean, not, not only that, but also the stress. Like, yeah, uh, just that small tidbit of when he comes home and you see Katie is like, uh, or he asks, have you seen our son yet? And he's like, I've been with him all effing day. Yeah. So it's it's the fact that, yes, it, it's a small little tidbit. People don't realize, but that the real life women of all these scientists that were that left hours and hours and hours a day to work on this thing that the women don't get enough credit that they had to pick up the work that you know we would have done like they had to not only just take care of their sons or their sons and daughters they had to also feed them when they came home clean up their workspace clean their clothes and everything else so the women just as much have an important role in this film and that little small nugget little small little details that you see in there that that really shines like yes obviously her shiny moment was when she's being interviewed by roger robb and it's it's awesome yeah yeah it's and we eventually also come to the conclusion that everything's just been set up by strauss because apparently oppenheimer humiliated him in a meeting and like again as i said he felt like all the he was turning all the scientists against him starting with uh Einstein, because we never mentioned, but like he sees uh, Oppenheimer and Einstein talking, and then like Strauss is like, "Hey, hey, uh, Albert," and Albert Einstein doesn't say anything to him, which will eventually get to like the whole real reason why. But yeah, he's just trying to like turn against him, and even his lawyer starts to realize you are setting all of this up, you know, just to make yourself look good. And I don't know if entirely that was true or that's just you know nolan being nolan yeah. because if y'all know nolan he likes to put twists and turns into all of his films um, one thing i can tell you that was not true or at least is implied to or it actually isn't true for sure when at the beginning of the film when he's uh, attempting to murder his tutor oh yeah uh, with the uh, cyanide uh, potassium cyanide into the green apple well see his the person he looks up to niels bohr comes in to you know visit visit the tutor and talk to oppenheimer yeah and he's choosing he has the apple on his hand he's about to eat it while that one scene about uh, the whole idea that he was going to attempt to murder his uh, teacher mm. was in the book that the film is based off of yeah. niels bohr never actually came to visit him in at that moment in time and oh, have wow. the apple on him. That was just something, like you said, uh, that Nolan likes to keep twisting and turning to keep mm-hmm. us, the audience, at the edge of our seat because you think, "Ooh, something's gonna happen." But that's that's like the one of the only, that's one of those examples. Yeah, but yeah, it's just because like uh, when I saw that, I was like, either that's a Nolan thing or Strauss was just the biggest jerk that ever lived on the face of the earth. And then like he thought he won. He thought like, "Oh, you know what? I got this in the back because supposedly like the jury was kind of now like, what was this? Uh, if I can." remember the verdict they which one the one for oppenheimer or for strauss well first for oppenheimer they recognize him as an actual like natural born citizen who did good for his country however they revoked his uh yes his security clearance yeah that's what i was looking for his security clearance and then strauss thought he had it in the bag little did he realize rami malik's character by the way just seeing rami malik in this film is already good enough yes I know. I'm going to say you got Iron Man and Freddie Mercury in this film. Oh, but. and let's not forget that name drop. 
Man, the fact that JFK basically was the yeah. sole reason that he never got the seat. Yeah, because this whole time, like, Strauss was, like, getting, wanted to have his new seat in. And what was it? It was the Secretary of Commerce. And Hill, Rami Malek's character, his character is, like, one of those pe- So if you ever go to, like, a courtroom or stuff like that, there are people who, like, will record, like, things that are happening word for word. And because, you know, he's good at his job, he's able to testify against Strauss, which is, again, like, super amazing. So, yeah, I guess he got what was coming to him. But, like, that that last, like, 15 minutes of Robert Downey Jr. just shines and shines more. Like, he's, like, very angry. He's, like, you know, he's trying to turn him against me, all that. So I was like, dude, where was all this talent? Oh, wait, I forgot Marvel. <laughs> not, not to offend anyone from Marvel. I like the Marvel films, not the recent ones, because they lack quality, if you will. Because, you know, Robert Downey Jr. has been with Marvel since 2008. You never saw him much in other films because all people will see is, you know, Iron Man. So seeing Downey Jr., especially again, the last like 10, 15 minutes of this film, you forget Iron Man. Like, I forgot Iron Man. I I didn't see Iron Man. All I just saw was Strauss. And it's interesting because like you and I looked into this as well. One of the inspirations for this film that Christopher Nolan got was a film called Amadeus, which is... I've never seen Amadeus before, but I know about the story. So Amadeus had his own rival at the time. I forgot what his rival's name was. Yeah, I forget. Yeah, but like the interaction between Amadeus and his rival was more about his rival than it was about like Amadeus himself, even though the film is called Amadeus. But like that character, like that characteristics between those two, he wanted to express that between Strauss and Oppenheimer. And then now we finally get to the end where like he talks about like, like, what have we done as humans? Like, you know, have I given man this whole thing? I want to look up the script if it's, if it's still out. It should be. If you read the, uh, the books, the, the actual book that came out is basically the screenplay. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to read what it says right here. Or like he believes that they started like a whole, you know, reaction that could destroy yeah. the world. Yeah. And that's why Albert Einstein was, you know, mopey a bit when he passed by Strauss. Why he didn't say out of Strauss because he believes that they probably did start a chain reaction that could end the entire world. It's and also that, that like, yeah. it's, it's also the fact that he knew it was going to happen. And now for him to get confirmation, because it just, so, you know, the little tidbit that some people, it must've overlooked some uh, people and the, uh, when they're watching the film in real life, Albert Einstein could also be, I mean, quote unquote blamed mm-hmm. for the creation of the bomb, even yeah. though he had no direct involvement. He did send a letter to Roosevelt expressing his fear that Germany was going to create one anyway, which is why he was telling Roosevelt, let's start making our own or let's start researching because yeah. it seems like Germany's about to make one and they're going to have the upper hand in the war. Yeah. And yeah. so just knowing that he got the confirmation from Oppenheimer with his belief saying, yes, it seems like we've started this chain reaction. And with that, I mean, yeah, that, that would explain his, his mopey attitude at the end. Yeah. He knew. He was like, well. Yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, the way it ends. You just know, like, and like, unlike most biographical films, this one doesn't say like, oh, well, now open hyper lived to be whatever, whatever. Well, first of all, there's going to be a lot of details because there's so many people that was involved with, with the Adam Project. The film's already three hours enough. It was It could take like another 10 minutes just to talk about every single person involved in the film. You know what I mean? Which I think is good because now it's up to us to think like, well, what happened to everyone else? You know, that now requires us to actually go online and do research ourselves. 
a small tidbit that I still love about about like towards the end of the film. Some people probably didn't recognize this unless you stayed after the credits and noticed uh, the cast. When Albert was still talking to him about that, uh, like you can see, like I guess there's a time gap. It just uh, advances, and you can mm-hmm. see uh, Oppenheimer is a little bit older, his wife's yeah. older, and stuff like that. LBJ at that point was the president, and yeah. he's the one giving him the medal uh, or whatever, something like the you know appreciation. And that one scene when Teller comes up to him, shakes oh, his I know hand, what you're talking about, yeah. And he, and then he uh, offers the same handshake to Kitty, and Kitty's like, "Nope, that is a that's based on a real photograph that <laughs> really happened." Yeah, the interaction happened, and Kitty was like, "I'm never shaking this man's hand." Yeah, no, because like when she heard like because like as, like as we mentioned before, Teller spoke out against Oppenheimer. Like it's not like he wanted to; it's just more like he just had to, mm-hmm. but, and like. You know, Teller saying, like, I'm sorry, like, I tried. And Oppenheimer knew, like, he didn't mean to turn against him. So that's why they shook hands, you know, because they still honor each other, like, from what they worked with. So, but Teddy says, I would have just spit in his eye. And you could tell, like, she was about to foam one in her mouth. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty much a, the abridged plot breakdown. But there's more I want to talk about. So I'm going to take a break right now. All right, and uh, welcome back to Get With All About The Media Podcast. Normally, we could have like multiple breaks within these episodes, but I think we're just going to keep it one break. Reason being is because like I just didn't want to cut off like talking about, I don't want to go like plot, you know, one part of the plot, take a break. Then continue talking about the plot, taking a break. So it's really just, we're just going to do one break for this episode, but I just wanted to uh, devote half of it to plot wise and then other half to technical aspects of this film because there's a lot of them i mean first of all nolan wrote directed and produced this film um i actually didn't know this was based off a book either so because like normally nolan writes his own material so this is like something new for me because even i can say that the dark knight trilogy yes that's based off like you know the batman comics obviously but it's still technically like his own original material because you know he writes the Batman, the Joker, differently than how the comics are supposed to portray them. But, I mean, what were your thoughts on, like, some of the technical aspects of this film? Like, if you can think of one off the top of your head. Well, to add on to to what you said, uh, watching the film, as soon as it was over and the credits roll, and it says it's based on American Prometheus, I'm like, hold up, this is based on a book? Uh, <laughs> so it was crazy to, to know that that was, like, one of the first first times seeing that, like, that it's it's adapted rather than him. And yeah. it used to be his brother. His brother and him used to be the te- the duel that would write oh, all the stories. I forgot stories. about that. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was the first time. I guess it's the first time he hasn't I think they in a while. I think they haven't wrote together, I would say, since Dunkirk. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they normally do write, like, stuff together because like, because you can't even say, like, because even Memento, Memento was based off something his brother wrote. So technically, it still counts as, like, own material. But yeah, sound-wise, as we mentioned, like, sound is, like, again, something he likes to play with. But I only give this film the benefit of doubt because, like, I understand, like, this is how sound's supposed to be in, you know, IRL in real life. Like, the whole shock wave of, like, when the bomb exploded, you know, like. Caught everyone off guard. Even the small things, like the small little explosions, the tests they made. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's that's real. Like if you and I were twenty feet away, 
the side to blow something up, we wouldn't hear the immediate impact. We would have to hear yeah. it a couple of feet away. And yeah. that's what I like about it. The whole scientific accuracy that he can put into these films. But also the filming, like when we talk about technical aspect. Yeah. Fission and fusion. At the beginning, we have the numbers. Mm. Uh, we have a number and it tells you fusion. Oh, sorry. First one's fission and the second would be fusion. But if you notice, that was telling the audience how to view the film and why there's a reason why there were there a lot of frames were in color. At least yeah. the majority of it was. And then some frames were in black and white. Black and white is referring to present day in the 50s, mm. while everything in color is simply a flashback, which is the yeah. reverse of how uh, Nolan made uh, story-wise the flashbacks and memory occurring present time scenes yeah. in Memento. Everything mm. in Memento was black and white was a past a flashback, whereas everything in color was uh, at that moment. Yeah. And the thing about Christopher Nolan, he always makes things like nonlinear I'm trying to think of like the definition of the term nonlinear versus linear writing or like, so let's put it this way. If you've seen Dunkirk, you know that like time works differently within that film because we're, there's a story that's in the sky, the story that's on the land and story that's in the water. They all like cohesively come together, but like it's different. If you know what I mean? Like there's this own little story within, hold on, let me just look up an actual good definition because I'm butchering it so bad. And I mean, I think, we could always say the pieces are interconnected, yeah. but they don't have necessarily be in chronological order. I would say, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Like Pulp Fiction. A lot of people yes, have I was seen thinking Pulp, Pulp Fiction. Fiction. So yeah. Pulp Fiction is nonlinear. But let's put it this way. It's not in chronological order. That's a simple way to say it. Because if you see Memento, things go back and forth. And if you've ever seen Memento, technically things are just going backwards because... In reverse. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting storyline. Yeah, like he has a unique way of like writing his scripts. But and then like, obviously, I got to give props to Ludwig Grothman, the guy who created the the score to this film. Oh, yeah. Dude. Okay. I don't know if I think you might have mentioned it, but okay, you know, I'll say this much. Tenet, after after viewing them separately, at least in terms of just uh, watching it in film and then hearing it online, just the soundtrack. I don't know what's better for me. I think I prefer Tenet. Mm. When I hear it separately, and then when I hear Oppenheimer, because there's a couple of tracks that, yeah. yes, I think just hearing them by themselves is fantastic. But like most of the tracks in that film or in for that film, I prefer to have to hear them while mm. I watch the movie. Uh, okay. Whereas in Tenet, every piece of the soundtrack was just thing. I can listen to it when I'm on the road. Yeah. Is that good? I mean, the thing about Tenet for me, and I, I don't hate Tenet, but it's definitely not the top breaking for in my opinion, like the top ranking of his films. The thing with Tenet is that like the soundtrack kind of like overplays too much. Like I think, like in my opinion, I thought it overplayed too much than Hans Zimmer scores in Interstellar. And Interstellar was pretty loud. Like you barely heard Matthew McConaughey's at certain points. Yeah. As again, he's always messing with sound. You even get the sound of like the fire that's forming. You get the sound of electricity. And it's not like a, like that staticky sound you hear. Like it sounds so different. Like it's like, like supposed to be how accurate because you were talking about molecules and all that earlier so mm -hmm. that's like that's pretty that's what i find interesting and as i said you know grossman's score you know he has a very um i was gonna say like grossman to me is like someone who likes to carry on you know people's work you know because he's carrying on like the star wars saga now because he's been doing the scores for the mandalorian and you know the book of mm -hmm. Boba Fett and a lot of other uh star wars stuff too because john williams i think is is he already retired yet or is he like coming close to it He's coming close to it. He said a yeah. while back he, that, yeah, what is it? He said a while back that Indiana Jones was his last film, but no. Nah. 
Yeah, but uh, like, well, uh, he he changed his mind. He'll still be making a couple more until you know. Yeah, so like he's carrying on like he decides. But he's like carrying on like John Williams' work, and I think he's doing it perfectly. And now he know. In case y'all don't know this, Hans Zimmer was Nolan's like normal person to do scoring, like how Steven Spielberg was to John Williams. But like Hans Zimmer didn't do the track to Tenet. It was Ludwig Grossman, and now you know Ludwig Grossman now has come back for Oppenheimer again. Score was amazing. It did feel like as if Hans Zimmer did write the the music to this. So. Again, I love Hans Zimmer scores, you know, The Lion King, Interstellar. He's done a lot. As I mentioned, I forgot to mention this. If you know anything about Nolan and special effects, no CGI is ever used at all. Like, none. Everything is all practical, and he goes to the limits on, like, creating very good special effects. I mean, because, like, I mean, the hospital scene in The Dark Knight, it wasn't a CGI hospital or display set of a hospital it was an actual building they blew up mm-hmm. yeah and like black hole the black hole was uh, regardless of what they claim it to be if you watch the behind the scenes in interstellar and how they made the stuff how they yeah. were able to figure it out sure some of that stuff obviously had to be cgi'd i mean they couldn't just completely uh find a whole ice planet or mm. <laughs> they couldn't travel to space and do all this stuff but the fact of the matter is is the black hole whether that have been maybe a bit of CGI, they had a black background. And all yeah. they had to do was use a globe, mm-hmm. paint it, and spread it out to where it looked like, yes, it's a rotating thing and it's moving. So all those things go back from the 70s. And I mean, here we are with, with Nolan and his technical aspect that he's using film, which is yeah. a, a dying media. He's going back to the elements, going back to how things were made back then. Yeah, dude, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Because like Tenon is all more of a like, editing rather than you know using cgi mm-hmm. and even like just a whole stunt team because as far as i can tell you i like most of his films have won like the special effects category like inception tenant interstellar one so yeah i think dunkirk brief so like dunkirk did actually have some like green screen effects but it wasn't like it's not like marvel where like 90 percent of their filmmaking or not exactly. even marvel, not even marvel really disney it's like 90 percent of their filmmaking is all green computer screen. generated it's yeah. like look i have nothing against cgi that's the thing cgi is very important it's the reason why we have fantastic films like terminator 2 jurassic park back to the future if you use it right yeah. and those films and nolan know how to use cgi as yeah. much as they need to. They don't you overdo it like you mentioned how Disney overdoes it. Here's the thing though, is that like sets, props, and you know, like camera tricks, believe it or not, that's cheaper than using CGI. Because mm-hmm. you get, when ninety percent of your film is CGI and not set, you have to understand this because I'm a film major. You don't even really have to be a film major to know this, but special effects artists like who use like computer and all that. Yes, there's millions of them, but you got to understand they're being paid by the hour. So Mm -hmm. the longer they're like sitting in a room, putting in the details of CGI, the more money you have to pay them. So like they don't cost cheap, you know, like not like a $10 an hour job. It's not a $10 an hour gig for them. No, this is like a hundred, $200 an hour gig for these people. And they can spend like a thousand hours at an editing booth. So understand like- Shout out to the uh, Spider-Verse artists. Yeah. So like understand like you're paying a lot to just for people who are, you know, sitting in a in a desk doing like details on a computer. And I'm not saying like that's not important or anything. I've done that before. I know the struggle. 
But if you like to, to keep things real and you like to like save a couple of bucks, Seth is where to go because it really construction. And I think this is something that should be a new track. Construction workers on films don't really get that much appreciation, mm-hmm. which is to me, like as a film major, I ca- that's where I really want to go because I mean, these are like unsung heroes. And if we're continuing to use CGI, they're going to be out of a job because there's a difference between creating a set for a film and just being a construction worker in general. Like they're helping you build the mind you have. So this is why I appreciate, you know, Nolan for what he does in his special effects. I mean, have you seen what they did with Inception with the hotel scene? Dude, it's, that is just like, how? how? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's insane. How? It's insane, y'all. That's why I say like, you got to give him Disney at least like, Cut back all the CGI. I was going to say, while you're at it, cut back all the remakes, too. And here's the thing. It's real. It's real. You feel the realism in this. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I didn't watch Oppenheimer and then get to the Trinity scene and think that was fake. That's real. Yeah. I don't know how they did it, but it's just, that's just crazy. Yeah. It's amazing, y'all. As we said, like, acting was really good from everyone. Storyline was good. Editing was actually pretty decent. I there's some moments where I'm like, it kind of, it's kind of overplaying too much, but other than that, it was pretty good. Cinematography wise, oh man, seventy millimeter, dude. Hoyt Hoyt von Oh Hoyt. my god. Yeah. And if y'all don't know this, he actually worked on Nope last year. With yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So peel man. This guy. The, the worst part is this guy has has yet to be nominated for an Academy Award. So, or this has maybe, to be the film. Just yeah. wait. This will be the film. But look, any notice the trend. I don't know if you noticed this trend right now that's happened, and it's probably happened for years. Most films that are about Americana or anything that may have any little ounce of propaganda of this country we live in is automatically placed in a nomination category at the Oscars. It doesn't yeah. matter what they what what nomination it's for, as long as it has anything to do with the patriotism of the country mm-hmm. it's gonna get nominated it's something <laughs> yeah so hopefully this is the film because like, you know last, he, he gets his dessert yeah because last year people were hoping like i don't know i actually do not know why but people were hoping he would get nominated for nope which is out of color for the academy because of like the type of film nope was because mm-hmm. like if y'all don't know the academy doesn't really like they don't really honor like big old sci-fi horror films as Nope was. Yeah. But I was surprised that he wasn't nominated for Interstellar, which was the first film that he worked for Nolan was. So that's where it's like, okay, so here, I think he was nominated for Dunkirk. And now I think that was the only film he was nominated for. So if he does get nominated, then I actually do hope he wins because that was the, that's amazing cinematography there. You know, continuing to use actual film. Yeah, and... Oscar chances, I think, uh, here's, here's my problem, is that when it comes to the Academy, they tend to screw over Nolan a lot, like with The, yeah. Dark, Knight, with the Dark Knight and then with Inception. I wish they gave more respect to Interstellar. Dunkirk was the first film he was nominated for for Best Director. He's been nominated in the past for different categories, but never in the directing category. So I literally hope they don't do that again this next year. But if he does, honestly, so far as I could tell you, I think he might actually have it in the bag. It's literally between him and I haven't seen Killers of the Flower Moon hasn't really been out yet. All the only ones who've seen the films are like people who were able to see what's the word I'm looking for, like screenings, mm-hmm. early screenings, early screenings. Yeah, people who've seen early screenings are already giving their reviews about it. 
So, so, so far, most people are saying it's actually between Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon, but it, it's either it's either or at this point. But yeah, obviously, director, I think he does have it in the back. But if it gets screwed over, I'm like going to be pissed, like <laughs> extremely. Yeah. Just wait for him yeah. to make the inevitable JFK biopic. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. Jay Robert Downey Jr. Obviously, he's got it in the back too. People are literally saying like, People who saw the early screenings of Killers of the Flower Moon think like it could be De Niro, but they think like Robert Downey Jr. might actually could still beat out De Niro. Um, or even uh, who was it? Um, see, here's the thing. At this point, if Cillian Murphy gets nominated, it'll be between yeah. him and Leonardo DiCaprio. That would that's an interesting that's an interesting uh, nomination duel because I rather because it's funny because. Third in line, so the so actual second in line, back to the whole Barberheimer thing, Ryan Gosling is considered also for a nomination. Oh, yeah. It's just pretty weird, but I mean, it's not my position. So I at least hope that Oppenheimer isn't that film that, that you know, that goes home empty-handed, which I highly doubt because, like, how much work is put into this film. And American like, propaganda. I yeah. mean, it, it's, it's pretty obvious. America just loves their patriotism. Yeah. I mean, I don't have, I mean, if you've seen Top Gun, that's pretty much where it was at. I think the last time an actual, like, American film has won big was Saving Private Ryan. Mm. Yeah, because it won Best Director and didn't win Best Picture. It lost to the pervert, you know, Harvey Weinstein's Shakespeare in Love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's the last time, like, a true patriotic film has actually won big. And it's interesting because, like, Nolan sounds British, but he's actually American. It's weird to say this, so... You'll hear Nolan, he'll sound British, but you hear Jonathan Nolan, he actually sounds American. It's because mm-hmm. they both hold both American and British citizenship. British. Yeah, so he owes it to both American and British uh, filmmaking. But yeah, did I hope he at least gets, he at least get a win for something. Like, I wanted to take Best Picture. That's like my big hope because I was going to say, I hope it wins Best Picture because that's like, so far, I think that's the only film, like everything, everywhere, all at once, just won Best Picture. I don't think any other film was going to top that until I saw Oppenheimer. So maybe there's a chance or Killers, but I haven't seen, you know, Killers isn't out yet. So And that is another three hour film. So get ready for that one. Actually, it's a 30, 30 minutes over three hours. So, yeah, if you have a Apple TV, it's easy for y'all to pause that. If you don't, you got to see it at a theater. Then don't order any drinks or anything. The way it was meant to be. Yeah. I mean, who knows? I hope hey. it does. I bought popcorn and drinks for Oppenheimer, and I was able to... I mean, if you know how to take yourself quite adequately, you know how to conserve the hunger you have yes. for what's in front of you, you're fine. So yeah. even if you go, even if we uh, go see Killers, I'm still going to have it with me, just not going to eat much. No, here's the thing, though, is that, like, but I was saying, like, when I saw Barbie, I had to use the restroom after the first act. Like, I don't know why, but when I saw Oppenheimer, <laughs> nothing. But... I mean, yeah, I think that's all I have for today. As for where I rank this film amongst Nolan's films, I would say, like, and it's difficult because, like, I love a lot of Nolan's films, so when a new film comes out, it could knock one of the top films, in my opinion, like, out of their place and take their place. So for me, I would say Oppenheimer might be top five, maybe close to top three, because right now, top three is is, is always Dark Knight, The Prestige, and Interstellar. Mm. So... I don't know which one it can knock off, but so far it's a Dark Knight, Interstellar, Prestige, now Oppenheimer, Dunkirk. 
Actually, no, the Dark Knight Rises. Dang, okay, that 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 is surprising. So yeah. I think that's around my list uh, as well. I would switch. Okay, just be me as a science guy. I would switch. Yeah. I would switch the Prestige with Oppenheimer uh, with this film. It's still like I said, the Dark Knight is still top one. Yeah, and then it's followed by confusing for me. It's either Interstellar or Oppenheimer as two or three. They uh, yeah. I, I switch every now and then with them. But yeah, 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 because it's, it's pretty hard. Because like unlike you know. Tarantino films, you could still watch it, and some could still take their place. Like I would say, most people wouldn't even consider Pulp Fiction their top one Quentin Tarantino film. I still think uh, top one for me is between Kill Bill and Jackie Brown. I guarantee you, people, at least uh, the new generation who watches, who has been introduced to these films, they don't even know who Jackie Brown is because no. it's unfortunately like the least the least watched in his lineup, and yeah. it, it's not his fault. It's also the blame for distribution because, I mean, Miramax or whoever is in charge of distributing his films doesn't distribute that film. But yeah, I mean, like with most great filmmakers, like you could say like, this is my number one or number, you know, but then when they come up with the new stuff and Hollywood can still make new stuff, it's just that, you know, as I said, like Disney tends to rely on their remakes and... I'm not going to get into the specifics of some of their recent uh, choices in their remix because I do want to have a separate episode about that because there's a lot to talk about on some of their remakes, by the way. But, yeah. you know, filmmakers, when they come up with something new, it's easy to like, you know, their rankings of the film. That's Nolan. Spielberg used to be like that. But, you know, other than the Fableman, some of his other films have not been like too memorable. No, yeah. Not like, not like Jaws or Jurassic Park or E.T., but I mean, they're still good, though. It's just that, like, if you think of Spielberg's, you're not going to think of the BFG or I'm a stad. You know what I mean? No, and it's not even like, it's just weird. Like, I don't know what it is now with him. A lot of the films that he's uh, created or he's basically directed, I don't go see them for some reason. Like, I saw The Fableman. Yeah. But well, that one time I went to go watch Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. But ever since then, I don't watch them anymore. Yeah. It doesn't entice me to go own it or to go yeah. just purchase it and watch it again. Yeah. I, I don't have that anymore. I All I do is go back to his old films. I'll just watch those. Yeah. By the way, uh, if when Oppenheimer comes out on digital or even DVD, I'm going to buy some both speakers. All right. I want to have that same effect every time I watch it to have that like that big old aftershock just hit you. Because, I mean... That's literally a film worth watching in IMAX because I, I mean say? it was made for IMAX. Yeah, like it was made for IMAX. Yeah, because like you and I, when we first saw Interstellar, we never saw it in IMAX because like we're seeing with a whole bunch of other groups. And I, I wish it to this day. Yeah, me too, man. And just imagine how like the visuals look when it's in IMAX. It's amazing. Yeah, man. I really recommend this film. Like it just gives you a whole perspective on like being a human and like understand you know what it means to like have human emotions or like what to think because like i'm in the process of writing a script right now it's from one of my classes and the idea is that like we're all human we all make mistakes but no one ever like actually studies that saying as soon as like someone does something you know people forget that saying and it's interesting because i never heard of j robert oppenheimer until i would say 2019 or 2020. So how I heard of how I was introduced to J. Robert Oppenheimer was, I don't know if you guys were ever familiar with a YouTube series. I don't know if they're still making videos now. It's called the Epic Rap Battles of History. Oh, yeah. But there was an episode with J. J. Robert Oppenheimer and Thanos. 
because, you know, both created dust out of humans. So that's how I've heard of J. Robert Oppenheimer. I understand once he creates something that humanity's introduced to, so much can come out of it, whether it's good or for bad. I mean, I love this film. Any final thoughts, this is? It's like, again, uh, just in summary, if you love science, you love film, you love the way they do this, it's like the best. It's a one-on-one. It's a done deal. You yeah. should watch this film. Anyway, that's today's episode. Again, Jesus, always glad to have you back. Thank you for get, having me. Yeah, we got to get more people involved in this. But yeah, you, you guys are amazing, uh, by the way. I'm still editing one episode because, again, I worked at a summer camp all summer. So don't get downtime to myself that much. And when I do, that's the time for me to relax. But anyway, if you're listening to this morning, good night, afternoon, just uh, be safe, yo. All right. God loves you all. You have a nice day. You have a nice one. 